Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourself. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. You're a taste of democracy. Very good. Hi there, Mark Kenny here with Democracy Sausage from ANU's Australian Studies Institute and the support of the Crawford School of Public Policy and the School of Politics and International Relations. Well, last week Australia joined a raft of other countries in discussing the global heating challenge in an extraordinary summit led by the still new US President Joe Biden. And not to put too fine a point on it, we quibbled, ducked and weaved and essentially revealed how determined the coalition is to do the bare minimum and to do it after everyone else. Mind you, it's not just the coalition. Labor may have pledged a 45% cut to emissions by 2030 at the last election, which is exactly the kind of thing other countries are now proposing. But as we speak, the opposition has no 2030 pledge at all and thus tacitly supports the existing 26% commitment of the government. That's right, Tony Abbott remains the most decisive influence on Australia's emissions policy, even as the world gets serious. It's hard to overstate the mediocrity of this political surrender. Labor could have stood its ground, shown the power of its convictions and would right now be seeing the world come to it. Instead, just as the world does that, Labor has tucked in behind the coalition, fearful of a political campaign over coal jobs in the regions. Still, a target may be forthcoming before the election and presumably more ambitious than the one the government's currently committed to. For his part, the PM says he's not interested in the when but the how. Technology, not taxes. Technology, not targets. It's another marker of Abbott's influence. Three-word slogans in place of arguments. Sophistry, not sophistication. Climate change is very much a temporal challenge. It matters not just what we intend to do, but critically how fast we intend to do it. Scott Morrison told us last week that net zero by 2050 wouldn't be achieved in the wine bars, cafes and dinner parties of the inner cities, revealing that the rancid politics of all this still dominates, the coalition being more interested in the who rather than the what. 
Meanwhile, he says the answer lies in technology. Think about that. The political right is now insisting that the answer lies in cutting-edge scientific advances, etc. Yet these are the same people who've been undermining scientific consensus for their own purposes for the last few decades. To that end, stories being placed in carbon capture and storage, green hydrogen, blue hydrogen and in even less proven processes such as extracting hydrogen from coal and something called coal gasification. Is all this viable? Well, to discuss these issues, I'm delighted to welcome back Professor Frank Yotzo, who, as well as being one of Australia's foremost experts on climate change economics, is a professor at the Crawford School of Public Policy and director of the Centre for Climate Economics and Policy. Welcome back, Frank. Yeah, good morning, Mark. And Dr. Emma Aisbert is a fellow at the School of Regulation and Global Governance at ANU, and she's Associate Director of Research at the ANU's Grand Challenge, Zero Carbon Energy for the Asia-Pacific. Emma's previous research spans economic globalisation, environmental policy, developing countries, and political economy. She's been an invited expert at both the OECD and the UN Commission on Trade and Development. Unktad, welcome, Emma. Thanks a lot, Mark. Great to have you on the podcast. So let's start perhaps with you. Maybe you can explain to me and to our listeners what is blue hydrogen. The actual official position of the Zero Carbon Energy for the Asia-Pacific Grand Challenge is that we don't like to talk about colours because there is actually different definitions of those colours in different countries of the world. But in Australia, if we talk about blue hydrogen, we mean hydrogen which is made from what's called steam methane reforming of natural gas, but then importantly includes um, a carbon capture and storage element. So that process generates quite a clean stream of carbon dioxide, which can theoretically be captured and stored underground. So the term fossil hydrogen, which I've also heard, is is that interchangeable with blue hydrogen? No, it's not. So blue hydrogen could be thought of as a subset of fossil hydrogen. Right. So hydrogen can be made, as you mentioned earlier, from either coal or gas, um, so both fossil fuels. But importantly, if you just make um, hydrogen from natural gas without the carbon capture and storage element, we would call that grey hydrogen. And if you just make it from coal, it would be called brown hydrogen. So a lot of these different colours are all captured under what we would refer to as fossil hydrogen. And when you say made from coal, you mean the coal is used to generate the electricity, which is used for the electrolysis process of no, I'm getting it. I'm jumping. no, no. Great questions. Though. Great questions. So yes, so so coal can be used in that way, but that would not be what you would refer to as brown or fossil um, right, hydrogen. Because there'd be no gain from that at all. Would so there? it's actually this this what you referred to earlier, this coal gasification um, process. So right. directly a chemical reaction. Now, Frank, we've just had this great meeting of. Uh, world leaders uh, and as we know Australia didn't really stump up anything new at least not in the in the form of targets you've written about this recently in the guardian how how long do we have to get moving really here can you sort of put a frame on that i, I know that's in a sense the, the 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 driving question of all of this really that we need to get the world needs to get serious about this it does feel like the world's getting serious although people i talk to uh, who are who are essentially trying to explain the government's position, say don't take the rest of the world too seriously. Some of the biggest pledges are coming from countries that have been dragging the chain or don't take them too seriously because a pledge is quite different from an actual achievement. So I guess can you sort of put, put us in the frame as to where, we are, where we're at at the moment and how long we've actually got? 
Yeah, very important conversation. There's, of course, a lot to unpack also from your commentary uh, with which you started our mm. conversation. So I hope we can come back to some of oh, that. Look, I'm, I'm, um, I welcome you doing that at any point. Because really, um, I think, to an extent, is this is by now less a party, uh, less a question of party politics and one of the whole, you know, Australian federal political system being stuck in the past, right? Mm. Being stuck in the past because the politics have, over the period of, of well over a decade, just lent themselves for this to be political football and any kind of um, more ambitious action being portrayed um, as uh, economically too costly. That's fundamentally the problem we're dealing with. That has held us back. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's true that um, the reality of emissions trajectories in Australia uh, looks better than the targets for 2030. Right. Um, so that's absolutely true. That's something a government points out. So, so this is the 19% that we're currently sitting at or we were in 2020 yeah, on 2005, 2005 that's levels. That's right. So 19% in 2020, of course, helped by the COVID lockdowns and all of that. Because mm. um, it was 14% the year before, right? Yeah, and then we had right. a, so, so it's a pretty serious we, we, jump to 19. We are now on a downward trajectory. Uh, and the, the point, though, is that the targets are extremely weak. Right. The 2030 targets of 26, 28 percent are extremely weak uh, in international comparison, certainly extremely weak in comparison to the ambition of the Paris Agreement. Um, and they're very easy to achieve for Australia because of the massive boost we got by reducing emissions from land clearing. Mm. Uh, and most of that happened between about 2005 and 2012. Right. So now, that's really I, what gave I, I, us the I don't the want bulk. to sort of steal your uh, – sort of break your, your stride there, but can you just explain that because my understanding is that we essentially had a had a, a long-term policy of significant land clearing we wanted that counted in our emissions profile That's so right. that we could then have a higher benchmark from which to cut from. Is that essentially it? Yes, that's right. So Australia is the only developed country where this is a significant issue, right? Where in the base year for the Paris Agreement, that's 2005, there was still a very large amount of land clearing undertaken. Land clearing, you know, by and large results in carbon dioxide emissions into the atmosphere because mm. you're removing vegetation cover. Mm. Um, and we're doing less of that, much less of that now. And and so we're giving ourselves credit for that. And, and that is in accordance with the accounting rules. But, you know, those accounting rules back in the day at Kyoto were fashioned in order for Australia to be able to um, – to, uh, to do that, to, to credit that to mm. ourselves, yeah, and that takes the pressure off the other parts of the sort of what you might call the kind of oh, that's right, the existing parts of the economy where emissions are a significant challenge. What what what's our performance look like in those areas? In in in, in other parts of agriculture, in in energy, in transport, fugitive emissions, mining, industrial yeah. processes. So by and large, everything has either been going up or flatlining, except electricity over the last few years. So if we look at everything except land use change and forestry, then emissions are almost exactly the same now as they were in two thousand five. And are and they the same per capita? Not per capita, they have fallen because, yeah, because the Australian gotta, population yeah. increases. So yes, that's right as well. And of course, if you um, if you divide by uh, GDP, then you're getting an even bigger reduction. But that's normal. I mean, the so-called emissions intensity of economies declines everywhere. So the point is, if we 
if we made the same kind of effort that uh, really the majority of developed countries are making now, right, then we'd have a much, much stronger target that we would actually achieve, right? And if we made a pledge that were equally ambitious as that, for example, by the UK or by the US or to a lesser extent the European Union, right, then you know, you'd be amazed just how big that target would be because, you know, the, the UK and the US targets in particular, they're stretch goals, absolutely, right? They're very difficult to achieve, right? If we took on a, a target that was genuinely difficult to achieve, right? Um, wow, that would be a very, very large reduction on 2005 levels. And it's a really interesting point, isn't it, that one about them being stretch goals because it, it reveals not just a difference in ambition but a difference in the philosophy of how you use those targets. Uh, Scott Morrison's making this you know, big virtue or he's been trying to for some time now of saying I'm not going to set a target until I know exactly how we're going to reach it, which sounds like he's, you know, he's, he's trying to sort of take some credit for um, – for not sort of succumbing to rhetoric and politics, but you know he's he's kind of you know he's, he's dealing in sort of hard logic. Unless there's a clearly identified path, I shan't be doing it. And it sounds like he's kind of defending Australia against the world. But there's if what Frank's saying is right, and it does appear to be uh, you know the the case that these other very significant targets that countries are naming are about setting a really high ambition and then, you know, seeing what policy levers, what restructurings in the economy need to occur in order to get there. That's a completely different philosophy, really, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's actually one that is at odds with uh, the government in the technology sector. So what we've had is the technology investment roadmap come out and it is full of targets and stretch goals. It is, isn't it? Yeah. And and, and the government's come out and Angus Taylor said, you know, it's really important that government signals where they're going to go on things and then that will leverage private investment and, in fact, the universities are meant to invest their time and money um, in following the direction set by the government. So it's not that this concept of government showing leadership and setting ambitious goals that the economy will then um, move around is foreign to the government. Why do either of you think that it is so political in Australia and and is less political in other places? Do you ever ponder that question? Thanks, yeah. For sure. <laughs> Look, I mean, it is intensely political in North America as well, right? Let's not forget that. It's just we've had a very dramatic change in uh, in, in administration there, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I guess what's what's different in the US comparison is that in the US there isn't quite a strong narrative of uh, strong climate action being bad for the economy, right? In fact, the Biden-Harris administration, I think, has been very successful in pointing out that strong climate action means a lot of investment, and a lot of investment is what America needs to get out of the economic slump, right? That's the story, really, right? It goes hand in hand with the, with the infrastructure push, right? It is, you know, let's go and, you know, renew the country and you, renewing the country means low carbon, right? Which is, by the way, exactly the same strategy that China has, right? And more or less also a strategy of most Western European countries, right? They see coming economic and industrial advantage in a low carbon economy. Whereas in Australia, we still have the really look, I mean, with some of these statements, I'm very strongly reminded of the early 2000s, right? Um, when the Howard government stopped talking about emissions trading and started talking about technological solutions, right? Um, against the backdrop of a, of, of a really strong 
uh, narrative, a politically successful narrative of climate action somehow destroying the Australian economy, right? Really not much has changed in that, uh, in, in that narrative over 20, the last 20 years. And, and look, it is absolutely right to put the economy central in this, right? I mean, successful climate policy must be economically successful, uh, policy, right? The, the contest is over, over, over what that looks like. And I would argue the, the evidence and the facts are very clear, right? The future economic advantage lies in zero carbon, right? There's really no doubt about that anymore, is there? No, I completely agree with everything Frank said. And I, I think one of the things you can't underestimate here is the, the resource curse, as we like to refer to it in Australian politics, that, you know, Coal, natural gas, and iron ore are so dominant, particularly in our export profile and our export income. And there's just no question that that means that those sectors have disproportionate political influence in this country, supported by uh, the Murdoch press, of course, as well. So the narrative that Funk's talked about is exactly true. That is the narrative, but it's completely false. So Australia actually has incredible natural comparative advantages when it comes to zero carbon energy, our, our huge land mass, our bountiful sunshine, our strong winds. We can also value add and actually bring higher export revenues and better jobs to Australia by refining some of that iron ore and that aluminium and our critical metals uh, before we export them overseas. So, And we could do that using renewable energy. Renewable energy, yeah. exactly. And we have some of the cheapest, the potential to make some of the cheapest renewable energy in the world. So it, it's a great tragedy um, that, that this narrative that, that climate change um, or climate policies are a threat to the Australian economy. It, it's no doubt that other people's climate policies mean that they're going to want to buy less of our coal and gas and that, that will take a hit. But from our perspective, what is our best response to that? What can we control? We can control taking advantage of the new markets opening up for green steel, green aluminium and even direct export of electricity and hydrogen. You say that the narrative is completely false, but it's, historically it's been also the narrative of Australia's success. I mean, we've been a, a major exporter of resources. Uh, it's made this country wealthy. Of course, we continue to derive, notwithstanding our you know very fractious relationship with China at the moment, uh, they continue to buy our iron ore, and iron ore continues to be a you know very much a foundation of our economy and our budget. So. Uh, you know, there's 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 an there's a great reluctance there, I think, on the part of you know, people engaged in the industry, but also on the part of governments to to forego that sort of income to shift to change the way uh, the economy is structured and to put any of that at risk. And the same well, with coal. Well, let's be clear, though, our exports of fossil fuels are dependent on other countries climate policies, not on ours. Yeah. So, so we can stay in the dark ages as long as we want. Everyone else is moving on and those exports are going to decline. There's actually a nice historical parallel, right? And, um, you know, this is before I migrated to this country, but, you know, I think they used to say that Australia uh, economy uh, rides on the, on the back of a sheep, right? Yeah, in terms yeah. of the importance of the wool industry, which was a significant portion of Australia's exports at one point, right? And then synthetic fibers came along and wool demand dropped. And, you know, I mean, would have been the right, uh, 
um, response by Australian policymakers at that point to dig in and support the wool industry because historically that's where our prosperity lay. No, of course not, right? And so in that, at that point, you saw diversification that really pretty much coincided with the rise of um, of, of, of of mining, right? Um, yeah. And and so you know, and that's really. That's been a tremendous success in terms of prosperity for Australia over the last, especially 30 years, you'd say, right? But, you know, uh, and mining will continue to be important for Australia, but, you know, coal in particular and gas, you know, will have had their, their runs basically. And, and the task is to, to find the next big thing, really. All right. Let's take a quick break and be back in a moment. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, before the break, we were talking about adjusting the Australian economy and the role of uh, coal and and, and uh, other mineral exports that have underpinned the economy. Um, uh, a recent Grattan Institute study has, or report has, um, has, has proposed the notion that Getting to uh, like a, a clean energy, renewable energy economy, uh, getting to sort of ninety percent, is actually quite achievable. It's that last ten percent that's very hard. Have either of you sort of engaged with that? And and uh, can you speak to that? I'm, I'm I'm interested in why that it why it is the case that that last bit is so hard. Yeah, and look, um, that recent report is is a fine example of a long tradition of so-called decarbonisation studies, right? And so you can follow them back. You know, ANU was involved in a deep de- global decarbonisation study five, six years ago, and and the results are really uh, similar. We can do this, right? Um, at the heart of it is electricity. You want your electricity system to be emissions free. Then you do electrification, electrify everything. So that's not just electric cars, but also most processes in industry can be run on electricity, and of course, you know, hydrogen production, which we should get back to, um, is is an example of how we can electrify some of the the harder to decarbonize bits and pieces in economy. Right? Um, then you go for energy efficiency, and then you go to individual processes, agriculture, industry, fertilizer, whatever, and do what you can. Right? Now, after you've done all that, there is um, a sort of a remnant of emissions that are hard to get rid of. Okay, the last piece of, you know, rarely used heavy machinery will run on diesel, right? You could convert it to electric, but it'll be hideously expensive. And so what you're better off doing then is to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and compensate for that, right? And so the equation becomes one 
So how far can you go squeezing emissions out of the system um, until you get to a point where it's actually cheaper to do reforestation or, in fact, to do technological uptake of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere? So that's that's really quite accepted that this is the way net zero will be achieved. Okay, what's what's unclear is how we're going to you know make sure that the carbon uptake from the atmosphere is actually being paid for. This question of who pays for it, as I say, the the uh, we had a carbon pollution reduction scheme uh, trying to be legislated by by a Labor government. It ended up being politically fraught. Uh, but how do we how do we do this now? If in fact we've got both sides of politics saying. They won't go back to an emissions trading scheme, therefore that kind of price on carbon. The the carbon price that the Gillard government brought in, which became known as the carbon tax, also became massively politically fraught. So all of those things that you were just talking about, Frank, um, getting them to happen, what, what, what's, what's, what's the mechanism now, Emma, that we can use to get to get these things to happen? If you don't have a price on carbon and you don't have a government that's um, inclined to sort of big policy levers or regulation, what? how do we do it? Well, that's an excellent question. I think most people who, who look seriously at how we're going to need to decarbonise our economies see that we need an all-of-the-above approach. So I don't think there's anyone um, seriously, you know, in the world today who talks about just using a carbon price to get us where we need to go because we won't get there fast enough. So green industrial policy, which you're seeing all around the road in, world, including Australia's technology investment roadmap, is definitely going to be part of it. And it's particularly with the COVID recovery, as Frank has alluded, so you've got this Keynesian kind of desire to to get economy stimulated, which combines very well with technological competition among the major powers, so the US, China and the Europeans in particular, um, but of course Japan and South Korea um, also really making a play to be the leaders in things like electric vehicles or hydrogen vehicles uh, and the hydrogen economy in general. So so you've got those competitive drivers. So there, there is a lot going for us. But I think, and I'll, I'll defer to Frank on, on this, but I think our studies and, and studies that are being done all over the world of how fast this transition is going to happen suggests that unless you're getting a serious amount of subsidy for things like green hydrogen, which is made directly from electrolysis of water using renewable electricity, they're not going to outcompete things like, you know, the, the brown and the grey hydrogen mm. Um unless there is some price signal, um, at least in the short term, till they get the economies of scale that they need um, that we've seen for things like wind and solar energy where they actually end up cheaper than the, the fossil fuel alternative. So is is that the kind of thing which implicitly we're looking at for these economies that have made these big pledges, like the UK with a 78% cut pledge? I mean, that is a uh, – that's that's – Dramatic, really. That's big stuff. Without a, an emissions trading scheme, is that, are they the sorts of policies they're now going to be looking at? Well, they have a carbon price there, but in addition, of course, there's there's other policies, and it's just like Emma says, it's it's an all of the above uh, approach. And the big lesson over the last ten, fifteen years has been that um, innovation, and in particular, the cost reduction in known cutting edge technologies, is really what saves us on in in this space, right? So, wind and solar. 
you know, I mean, if you asked, you know, most people in this field five, ten years ago, would have said, well, we'll have to, we'll need wind and solar, but we'll have to subsidize it for a very, very long time indeed. Right now, wind and solar in many places, the majority of places in the world actually produce electricity cheaper than any of the alternatives, right? So we've broken that, that wall in a way, right? And, we'll that, see the and same that was done initially with some subsidies. Yes, with- that was done with enormous amounts of yeah. support for deployment in various forms, technology support, development support, and then support for deployment, right? And if you take the hydrogen point, right? Um, I mean, there's every opportunity that green, totally emissions free hydrogen will become cheaper than the fossil fuel based uh, alternatives and that could happen quite quickly but you need to get over the hump basically yeah, right? and, yeah. is there any danger then that uh, um, this is sort of a, a sort of a pessimistic question in a way but is there any danger that the massive investment in these renewable things solar and wind will end up being stranded assets as well by these technological advances is that is that no no, no. So, so I think it's really important. There's a lot of talk about hydrogen and a lot of excitement for very good reason around the world. But that's because it's particularly good for some of the processes that you can't do with electricity. So some of the industrial processes, some of the heat. But there is no way that green hydrogen will ever be cheaper as a means of producing electricity, for example, than directly producing the electricity from the, from the wind and the solar themselves. So the round trip efficiency, as the engineers like to say, is only 30% if you take green electricity, turn it into hydrogen, and then burn that hydrogen to produce electricity again, you've lost uh, 70%, 70% of mm. your energy. Yeah. It's like a very inefficient battery, but the advantage is that it's an absolutely massively large battery, right? And so... The, the interesting part lies in high latitude, high population density countries like Germany, Japan, that need to get over their winter energy demand, right? Um, which you're not going to do with batteries, obviously. What's Germany doing with steel production? They've, they've had some pretty innovative policies uh, in relation to uh, greening that, have they not? Sure, I, I think we can both talk to this one, but definitely uh, hydrogen and, and particularly green hydrogen is a part. Is that's a great example of how we need hydrogen, which we can't electrify everything like steel processing completely, at least not from all. Uh, so, so. And that is one of the reasons that this is the sort of technologies that are really new and that there's a lot of competition. Steel industries around the world are notoriously effective lobby groups as well. Uh, so this is the sort of um, industry that is getting a lot of attention um, and is really important because the steel industry accounts for, I think, it's around 7% of global industri- global industrial emissions per year. So if we can decarbonize that, that's a big win right there. Yeah. And get, if if we have the time for Australia, yeah. the steel industry is is massive that that transformation because right now we export you know we're the world's largest iron ore exporter we're an extremely large um, met coal coking coal exporter hmm. which we, is the coal that's used in steel production in steel production yeah. right every elsewhere mostly in China right um, and we produce precious little steel at home now in future at some point in the future steel production will very large very likely be green right which means it won't use coking coal anymore. And mm. so those exports, you can forget about them. Mm. And a big question then becomes, is Australia just an iron ore exporter in that situation? Or are we a major steel producer on the basis of, of renewable energy? Right? That's an absolute threshold question uh, and, and a question that has hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue and value added to uh, attached to it. Yeah, it's an enticing question. On the risk side, 
um, one of the things that's being talked about at at the moment, being talked about very meaningfully in Europe, is is border adjustment to export prices or so called um, carbon tariffs. How how realistic is this as a danger to Australia, given you know that there's a view in the world, as Frank's written so eloquently about in the last few days, a view in the world that we're just not cutting it, um, you know, with uh, with our um, slogans basically. Can I can I pull that apart? Yeah, do so. I think it's very realistic, but it's not necessarily a danger. Oh, okay. So so I think it's very likely that we will see carbon border adjustments. Uh, put in place by the European Union. And, and this would be basically uh, governments saying uh, products coming from Australia, they haven't uh, taken adequate account of the carbon produced in that, it's not reflected in the price and we're going to put a uh, an extra tariff on top of it to penalise those our exports. Yes, as a broad brush answer, that's mm. correct. But, of course, it w- that if it was as simple as that, that wouldn't be WTO compliant because then it would be on the basis of the country of origin discrimination occurring. So what they'll need to do is give Australian producers the opportunity to prove that actually their product is low carbon right. and therefore um, you know at least minimise or completely eliminate that tariff. And it's of course not only Australia that would be um, the subject subject of those carbon border adjustments and therein lies the opportunity for Australia because we have a natural comparative advantage in cheap, clean electricity. This is the sort of thing that might see steel industries coming back to Australia because we could theoretically make make green steel um, cheaper than China if because we have the cheap um, electricity and we have the world's largest iron ore deposits co-located. Well, it's a, it's a, that's a, an enticing prospect, but there's not a lot of, or is there? Tell me, is there a lot of evidence that governments are looking that long term? That Australia is looking that long term to restructure? Well, um, there's there's plenty of interest among state governments and uh, also the federal government. I think it's fair to say in industrial revival, right? And so this is this actually gels with regional policies as well. You know, I mean, everyone's concerned about economic prosperity in Australia's regions, right? And many of these regions, the economic backbone is, in fact, the carbon industry, whether it's yeah. mining or uh, processing on the basis of coal and gas. Um, and so that is a big live topic. And I think it is, you know, it, 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 it wouldn't be fair to say uh, all politicians just care just care about the next election in that regard, right? There is a genuine concern about the longer term. Um, what's for the most part still lacking, I think it's fair to say, um, is is you know the the vision to actually see that that new world, right? And the courage to to go there, right? Because it's just politically so much easier to kind of pretend that everything will just be fine for the next 10, 20 years, right? Um, and just say, well, you know, whatever comes after that, that's not my problem, right? That's that's really a situation. I think I think we're I, in really I agree. I think that's there. actually the problem. There's almost like a disconnect between the economics and the science on one side and the politics on the other. It's 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 politi- politically quite sort of convenient and easy for governments to say, well, that lot over there, that that other side of politics, they don't have any confidence in your future, but yeah. we do. We believe in yep. your jobs. We believe in coal. We believe in your jobs, your regions, and we're going to stand behind you. And it's it's an enticing message if you're in an industry that feels like it's under siege. Hmm. 
And look, I mean, the the point really is this is not a sudden transition, right? It's not like everything's just going to shut next year, right? But things will gradually shut over years to come. And power state, coal-fired power stations are the archetypal example. Mm. We know they will shut. And it's very clear that they're probably going to shut quicker than, than the announcement dates, right? It's been the experience all the time. So what does that mean? That means local communities need to be prepared, right? State governments need to be prepared to the extent they want to go in and invest in infrastructure, business creation, right? do that ahead of time. Tell your young people not to go for a job in the coal and gas industry, right? That's that's it's a generational thing as well, actually, right? It's 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 about a, a gradual shift away from these industries. And and it is also important to acknowledge that, you know, these industries were actually tremendously important to Australian economic prosperity. Right? And they have yeah. local economies associated with them too, and people are hooked into those local economies. They own awesome. houses, for example, in in towns where the yeah. where, which are based on the on the coal industry. And if coal's not to be the driver of that of the economy in the future, then it's going to have implications for their assets in 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 that community, and and indeed they've got other you know investments as well of a social nature and entanglements and the like. How do we how do we deal with that? I mean, all of this needs to be brought into the picture in a way, doesn't it? That you know, I mean, I've said on this podcast before. I think the government needs to be looking at a much more kind of um, uh, imaginative. Uh, transition plan for this, uh, and in some cases, it might actually be using a large future fund to 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 take assets off people at at current prices and give them the option to retrain and go somewhere else. I mean, I know there's a lot of talk all the time, and we hear talk from both sides um, about the the prospects for jobs in the renewable energy sector, for example, replacing these old fossil fuel jobs. But it sounds quite theoretical. To a lot of people, I think. So, yeah, it has to be made practical. And just very quickly, I mean, last just last week in Gladstone, Queensland, yeah, mm. Australia's carbon capital in some ways, right? right? Um, there was a summit with lots of community leaders, business leaders uh, to come together to discuss exactly those those issues. And there's no easy answers, but you know, it's a very positive when, you know, uh, union representatives, CEOs, environmental NGOs and local councillors get together yeah. to actually talk about this, right? And and to look at and what are the ways forward for retraining, you know, for social adjustment, and I think very crucially for establishing new industries, right? So what kind of new industries can be established in Gladstone, right, which is Australia's biggest yeah. kind of carbon export port, basically. Yeah, I, I think you're both entirely right. Although I, I have to admit, I'm there's so many direct dimensions to justice, right? So, so, so who is taking care of um, the fishing industry in Tasmania, which is collapsing because of the changes in the water temperature down there? Who's going to take care of the tourism industry on the Great Barrier Reef, which is going to collapse because the Great Barrier Reef's dying? Yeah. Uh, so, so I think we, you know, there's a very much a, a white male jobs matter than more than anyone else's jobs, yeah. and that's who's in the mining industry. So maybe it's. I'm bringing in the gender perspective here that mm. these other industries like tourism, which um, employ a whole lot more people yeah. and particularly a whole lot more um, diverse group of people. Um, and which, so, and so, which so, of themselves don't do material harm to the environment, at least not in any significant sort of way. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I understand that politically, and, and it's absolutely true. So if you look back, you know, there's really good research on, on trade liberalization and, and which countries were able to liberalize trade most fairly and efficiently. It was those that had the best safety nets because 
Oh, understandably, yeah. people are terrified of losing um, not only their incomes but their way of life and their identity. Um, but if you can at least have a good safety net in place to um, help build them a new identity, as you say, yeah. then then you're going to reduce the political pressure. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. That particularly that one about people's sense of themselves and who you know how where they fit in, and a, a debate raging about the validity of of their existence is is a confronting one. And I think people need. To you know, people who aren't in the in the industry and who aren't in those regions need to understand that uh, that if we are going to drive an economic transformation, then we need to, for the reasons of the Tasmanian fishing industry and the Great Barrier Reef tourism and everything else, we need that to happen reasonably quickly. I mean, it's not in, exclusively in Australia's province to obviously control the, the the factors that are determining you know the temperature of the ocean and global warming generally, but we have to play our part and we have to play our part quite quickly. And so there is a sort of a, uh, a strong moral and practical argument for making that transition relatively as painless as possible and, as I say, swift. And that may involve quite imaginative uh, spending policies by governments to, to do it, like investing in the change itself. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I actually think uh, that the New South Wales government, that, you know, Matt Keenan is doing a really good job for, in his efforts on the Hunter to try and, you know, bring the new industry. Notwithstanding um, the to, problems he had with appointing Malcolm Turnbull to that committee and then having to pull the pin on it. But, but yeah, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, make this a, a partisan podcast in any sense. I, th- I think there are good things going on. And I think oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. one of the other good things that we haven't mentioned so far that I do want to mention, and this is a bipartisan thing, mm. um, although set up under Labor, is ARENA and the CEFC, so the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. Both institutions, by the way, that Tony Abbott was pledged to Remove. So you right. say it's bipartisan, but he tried to get them. I mean, Cl- Clive Palmer played a role in saving them. Yeah, no, 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 that's, in that's, one of the more that's bizarre. That's one example where we've moved past the apogees. Yeah. Right? So the present government, I think it's fair to say, recognizes the the utility of of these particular institutions and and others beside it. Right. That's true. Which but is even really defining difference from the it, it is. But even so, they've tried to broaden the definitions of what the Clean Energy sure. Finance Corporation, for example, could. Lend money on because you know what do they sure. used to call it, Bob Brown's bank. <laughs> and you know, I mean, there's every case for that as well because you know, um, renewable energy generation as such needed support back then, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, just renewable energy as such by and large doesn't need support now, yeah. It's what's, a good point. what's what's needed now is the you know, first of a kind financing in industrial applications. in Advanced uh, storage systems, etc., etc. It's it's, yeah. it's the right thing to to evolve, to, to broaden it. Yeah, it's so. a very good point. I'm, I'm really glad you made that point. Uh, can I finish on this sort of broad question? Then, is it possible that, in a way, the coalition will be, or Australia, if I can make it more bipartisan, in the spirit of uh, our last few points, uh, that Australia will be vindicated simply by technology? you know changing like so all of this argument all of this you know fussing about um uh, on on sort of policy questions and the and the government essentially refusing to do it uh, the, the pm says technology not taxes technology not targets as i said we do have significant i can see you nodding emma um take it away 
I think technology is taking us face places faster than we would have expected it to do on its own. The problem is we have delayed climate action for so many decades mm. that we it's not fast enough on its own. We can't just sit back and let technology and the rest of the world's investments and policy drive things as quickly as we need things to happen to save things like our forests, our reefs. It's mm. Things needed to happen yesterday, but now that it's today, they need to happen a lot faster than technology on its own will get you. If Labor had won the 2019 election, um, Frank, with that uh, 45% pledge for cut by 2030, would we be further down the track now than we are? Well, very likely, yes, of course, right, because it would have come with a package of policies to actually drive things, right? And, and, you know, net zero emissions will be to a very large extent achieved through new technologies, right? But they're not technologies that still need to be invented. Right. right. We, we know pretty much the entire suite of technologies that will be used for, for net zero, right? Maybe we're lucky and there'll be a surprise or two along the way and it'll get even better, but we know how to do this now. It is a matter um, of deployment um, and that deployment will bring down costs of new technologies as well, right? And so, you know, to just say, um, we shouldn't do anything now. We should somehow do technology, right, um, is, is a way to kind of deny and postpone action, really. That's, that's the danger, right? It's a good thing to invest in technology development. It's a bad thing to only do that. Thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Sausage. It's been really great to have such uh, terrific experts who can unpick some of these things. I hope that our listeners have uh, gained as much as I've gained from talking to you. So Emma Aisbet and Frank Yotzo, uh, once again, thanks so much for coming on Democracy Sausage. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Been a pleasure. And that's it for Democracy Sausage for this week. Well, not actually for this week because there will be a Democracy Sausage Extra which should be available on Thursday and that will be a special live conversation with uh, Peter Van Onselen, political journalist, political editor at uh, Channel 10 uh, and a range of other things including academic appointments, professor of politics at uh, University of WA and other places. Uh, and he's talking about his new book, How Good Is Scott Morrison?, which he emphasises has a question mark after it. And uh, I'll be talking to him uh, at an event at the um, at ANU in front of a live audience and we'll be bringing that to you on Thursday. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that conversation, so keep an eye out for it. And if you do want to contact us at any point, uh, talk to us about uh, anything to do with the podcast, we're always eager for your views. Uh, you can do that on email. Uh, the email address is podcast at policyforum.net. Uh, you can come to us on Twitter, of course, uh, at APPS Policy Forum. That's at Apps Policy Forum. And the Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod, which uh, you can just type into the search bar and find us that way. So by all means, interact with us. If you've got things you want to say, uh, any observations you want to make, if there are suggestions, for example, of, of – uh, issues you'd like covered or experts you'd like to hear from, uh, we'd certainly welcome your feedback. That's it from me and we'll look forward to talking to you later in the week.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.